don't think because I didn't lose my temper, I'm not angry or I'm lacking a plan. Welcome to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast about the television that we're obsessed with. Right now, we're watching American Gods. I'm Annalie Newitz. I'm Ars Technica's tech culture editor. And my guest this week is Evan Narciss. He's a critic at io9.com, and he's also a comic book writer at Marvel. So one of the things that we're going to talk about this week is whether or not American Gods fits into a comic book tradition of writing about old and new gods. And of course, we're going to talk about this week's amazing episode. So let's get started. Thanks so much for joining us. This is your second time on Decrypted, and you were so awesome the first time that I was like, basically, come back and talk more. So Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'll come back as much as you want me to. <laughs> Excellent. So this was a really interesting episode this week uh, for a lot of reasons. There were a lot of scenes that were not in the novel. The first episode, we, we stuck pretty closely to the novel, but this time we really just veered completely off the path. And it had this amazing opening with Orlando Jones, who was so amazing in Sleepy Hollow, and I was so sad when he was gone from Sleepy Hollow. Let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, a man got fucked. So now he is playing Mr. Nancy, a.k.a. a Nancy, who is, people keep describing him as an African folk god, but he's a god. He's just a god. Yeah, he's a, he's a West African trickster god. He's, yeah, he's, he's part of their pantheon. So what did you think of that opening scene? Like, tell, give me your, your lowdown on that. I mean, it blew me away. Like, I saw the episode in advanced screeners that Stars had provided. And, you know, I liked the, fir- the pilot, right? The pilot was great. Yeah. And I wrote a little bit about how I felt weird at, at having Shadow be lynched at the end of that episode, even though I understand thematically it fits with some of the stuff we know that's supposed to come later on. Also... Odin is a gallows god, so that fits too. But, you know, anyway, you slice it. Hanging a black guy on a TV show is, is uncomfortable material. And what I wanted Especially from that... Especially when he's being hung by white techies. It's kind of oh, weird. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Faceless white techies who, who attack as a mob. Yeah. Um, and we're told by their leader that, they were, yeah, we're just going to delete his life. So, yes, all kinds of uncomfortable echoes. And I wrote about it in my episode one recap. What I wanted from that scene, what would have been nice, was some kind of understanding how that kind of act is part of American mythology, is part of American history. You know, the the gods and the power structure that has been set up now is only achievable by virtue of such things being able to happen, extrajudicial judgments against people who you decide don't belong. So that didn't happen in that episode. But it, it felt like it was almost a thematic baton pass from that scene to the opening of episode two with Orlando Jones's Mr. Nancy monologue. I guess it wasn't a, a really a monologue, but it was just a, a introduction. Because here's all this stuff about America, which, you know, often we don't like to admit about our, our country's history being laid bare in the, in, the, in the most angriest, brutal, blunt way possible. And I thought it was great. Let me paint a picture of what's waiting for you on the show. You arrive in America, land of opportunity, milk and honey, and guess what? You all get to be slaves. You know, it's funny. We, uh, we did a post on I9 about, about that scene before it came out, before the episode actually aired. And there are some people who are quibbling about, 
you know, he's he's talking to them about stuff they have no uh, frame of reference to understand. And and my thing is, if we're gonna allow the gods like a full like panoply of powers and abilities, then we can understand. I think we can we can give them enough wiggle room to allow for them being able to understand and what he's saying in in their own language and idioms. I thought it was great because you know there's this kind of I think amoral conundrum that's still at the heart of American gods. Like, how much do these gods really care about humanity? A hundred years later, you're fucked. A hundred years after that, fucked. A hundred years after you get free, you still getting fucked out of job and shot at by police. You see what I'm saying? And on one hand, you can see Anansi's speech in that in that instance as like an exhortation to revolution, right? On the other hand, you could be like, hey, I need somebody to light a giant juicy sacrifice for me so I get to keep on existing and and screw whatever else. So I thought it was really interesting in that regard. And then it come down specifically as like, he's like a nurturing, protective God who like wants the best for his people. You are already dead, asshole. At least die a sacrifice for something worthwhile. Let the motherfucker burn. And would rather see them die than live in slavery. It's like, yeah, you guys are going to have live screwed up lives anyway. So why not burn it all down, kill yourselves, kill them. And since I feed off chaos, I'll have a nice big reservoir of that. So I thought that was something that was really chilling about it. But also, you know, as it applies to the real world, him running down like, you know, a century after that, you're still fucked. And a century after that, you got cops shooting you in the street. It was a very succinct and painful way of running down how these people who were kidnapped from a different continent were dehumanized and turned into property. I love that moment when he starts to, to speak. He says, you know, do you want to hear a story? And you think, oh, it's going to be like a trickster story type thing. Yep. And then all he yep. says is, you are fucked. And then he kind of goes through, like you said, and says like, and then you're going to be fucked in this new way. And when these Dutch motherfuckers came here, they made you black and they decided they were white. And it's, I wanted to get back to briefly what you were saying about how he's he's anachronistic you know he's he's kind of from a modern world and he's talking to these guys in the late 17th century and i actually really loved how that scene basically collapsed time because yeah. he isn't from the present he he looks like he's wearing kind of almost a zoot suit kind of a modified zoot suit there's a jazz soundtrack, so we're hearing, it's sort of an early, it's like a Harlem Renaissance kind of figure. And of course, these guys who are slaves are not even African American yet. They're just, you know, like he says, you guys think you're people. They're just, you know, from whatever tribe they're from. They, they don't have any sense of, of this weird new idea of whiteness and blackness. And I just love that he, his English, and he's from, his English you know, all of them can understand it. And he's from the future. He's from our past and their future. And he's telling them this this future story. And I just felt like it reflected a lot of other kinds of narratives where, especially in the African-American tradition, where we see slavery collapsing time. Like I keep thinking about Octavia Butler's novel Kindred, where yeah. it's such a horrific event. It's like such a rift in space where people are moved around and they're not, you know, able to even stay in touch with their families, let alone their cultures. And then now we see that it collapses time too. And of course, I'm stealing that idea from other people. I didn't come up with it. But I love 
that we get that kind of encapsulation there, which we don't really see with a lot of the other gods. We don't really get that kind of sense of the whole history of a group kind of mushed down into one scene. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, this idea that slavery is this birth call, this this kind of like original sin of the American Republic is something that, you know, remains an unpopular idea. And it went right at that. It's like, look, the country's not even founded yet, but here's the foundation on which it's going to be built, or at least a large part of it. And it's flawed at the core. And I feel like that scene was another way of referencing the major overarching theme of American gods, which is immigration and traditions being carried over from one culture, one country to this new American context. And yeah, like all those transfers weren't willful or pleasant or equal. So I thought I thought that was a really great scene. It also reminded me, you know, riffing on your idea of uh, collapsing time, there's this great Derek Bell short story called The Space Traders. And Derek Bell was a, a writer and an activist who was also a lawyer. And he wrote a book of short stories. One of them was The Space Traders, in which this seemingly benevolent alien race shows up in, in spaceships all over, across the world and promises, you know, to create a modern day utopia, if only, I think it was America was the only country in question, would ship off all its black people to the spaceships. There was no indication as to what fate they would meet. But, you know, hey, you get rid of the you get rid of these people, and you'll have a utopia. I won't spoil the the outcome for anybody who hasn't read the story. But yeah, it was like, okay, yes, here's this thing we can't escape. And no matter how we we envision our fiction, how fantastical the paradigms we're trying to evoke are, that it's still there, you know, and it's as and it will be there as long as we don't contend with how this country and certain classes of people benefited from it. So it was great. Yeah. I, I my my only disappointment from the from um, that second episode was that we didn't see more of Mr. Nancy um, within the the rest of the show. Yeah, I agree. And I I mean, he is going to come back, but I think that was kind of his big moment. I wanted to ask you before we move on, because we talked about this a little bit um, in last episode and reached no conclusions. Um, My question was, do you think it makes a difference that Shadow is black in this series, whereas in the book, he's kind of Eh, amorphous so ambiguous he's, he's, yeah. ra- he's racially ambiguous or ethnically ambiguous and i think neil gaiman has actually said after people asked him like 900 billion times you know what's the deal he said well he's supposed to be ambiguous right i do think it's a big deal that he's black and i think it's important that he's black because again if we're dealing with a show that's about immigration about like this weird syncretism that american culture comes from like having a main character who has histories that have been erased or that he doesn't know about. I mean, that's a little bit of a spoiler for people who haven't read the book, <laughs> but part of Shadow's deal is that like he doesn't know everything about his past. And I think that there's a very nice dovetailing that happens when you, when you think about African-American history and how African-American people can only trace it back but so far. You know, you can't, you can't go all the way back to the old country. If you're lucky, you, know, you might be able to get back to like a manifest where your ancestors came across, and that's if you're lucky. But yeah, there's a part of your history that you're not able to access. And and we're talking about a show where the gods have to constantly fight for attention and time in people's heads, and that's a resource um, that they're struggling to avail themselves of. 
And it's something that you can say the same thing about the African-American community in this country. Like, you know, they don't have the same kinds of resources to architect their own sense of themselves, at least institutionally, right? So without that, you're kind of left with an act of self-creation and and a constant struggle against powers that don't necessarily want to let you treat you as full human beings. So I think it's by the simple virtue of having Shadow be a black guy in this show, I think all of that gets activated in, in a significant way. That's It's a little bit passive and subliminal, but it's, it's there to be read if you're interested in such things. And obviously I am. So I think, so <laughs> I think it's great. I also think it's important uh, what you said about the fact that it's kind of subliminal in the sense that you could actually watch this story. Well, not after the Mr. Nancy scene, but you, you could mostly watch this TV show and be like, eh, I don't know. He it doesn't really matter that he's black or whatever, but, but it does matter. I mean, you can, you can definitely see that as being a theme or you can see it as being part of the larger theme of, you know, losing your, losing touch with your past, which a lot of immigrants have done, not just people who were forcibly relocated, but um, I think it's common, especially people whose ancestors like mine were basically crooks. (laughs) I don't know much (laughs) about where they came from. I know my great grandfather was an arsonist, um, which is kind of badass, I guess. But I don't know, you know, where he came from in Central Europe or anything like that. So he learned to set fires somewhere. So, <laughs> oh, not a hard skill to acquire, but a dangerous <laughs> one nonetheless. Um, <laughs> my colleague uh, Catherine Trindacosta wrote a great piece on io 9 about how one of the the tensions in the show was about immigrants and assimilating, and how the American mindset is that yeah, you you if you immigrate here, you have to assimilate. There's going to be some part of your culture of your of your native culture that you you give up or or de-emphasize in order to fit in better and and have a successful life, the American dream, so to speak. And I think the show really gets at that. I mean, in the Chernobog character, his talk about when he was working in the slaughterhouse. Yeah, you need arms to break the skull, but that's not the goal. The goal is to crush the brain inside the skull. Was a great example of that. He's like, hey, I knew how to do this thing, right? And it was skill and strength and craft that turned into art. He has that great line. And to give a good death is art. So he was clearly proud of being able to do all that, right? Even though it was gory and scary and gross. But then things change. He can't be that person anymore. He can't be that god anymore. And he's bummed out by it. And so Shadow comes up and he's like, okay, we'll play this checkers game. And if you lose, I get to do that thing that I used to be really good at, but I can't anymore. Yeah, and actually what he'll be doing if and when he gets to uh, snuff out Shadow is is harking back to the role that he had back in Central Europe where he actually killed human sacrifices. And so it really is a, a kind of nice evocation of how immigration changes people because first he comes to the states and it's like oh i can't do human sacrifice anymore at least not openly so i'm gonna go you know put my skills into you know the meatpacking industry which was a huge uh, source of employment for immigrants in the early 20th century especially people coming over from europe and in chicago especially right exactly which is <laughs> you know where upton sinclair set the jungle and so uh, so he's kind of this guy from the jungle but then of course those jobs dry up and so it kind of gives you that nice multi-generational look at you know an immigrant who came over took a working class job that job disappears now he's even more screwed because 
even the skills that he had in the new world, in his new adopted home, are no longer serving him. So assimilation kind of failed him in the end. And so that's, and that I think is the story of, of many immigrants. One of the things that I am super confused about in this show, um, even though I love Bilquist, like I kind of want a Bilquist spinoff where like every week it's just kind of like the person of the week that she absorbs. <laughs> yes. And the actress is so incredible. But how the hell did she get over to the United States? Like who brought her? Like she's from like 6,000 years ago or something. Like she's right. not, she's not like, you know, a Nancy or Chernabog or... Yeah, she doesn't have this direct line of, like, transfer, right? Well, if I'm recalling the book correctly, she's essentially the Queen of Sheba, right? That's one of her names. Right. So, you, I mean, I guess you can go with that iteration of her, I don't know, from the Bible or the whatever, whatever the source material that the biblical stories were riffing on, that history there from North African, like, cultures, Egyptian cultures that whole part of the world, you can assume that like there was probably like a reservoir of folklore about her that somebody had brought over. One thing I think that the show and the book kind of sort of differ on is like how much worship do you need to like get transported? You know, like yeah. the thing about Chernobog and the Zariah sisters is that like, and I think I remember Gaiman saying this in an interview was like, he didn't want to pick major gods as the characters in the book, you want a guys that were kind of like second tier, third tier, not as familiar, so that the idea of them transferring over to America would, and struggling to, to maintain worship would be more believable. Like, you know, you if you brought over somebody like, I don't know, Thor, for example, it'd be, <laughs> it'd be like, okay, yeah, no, Thor's got like an active user base, you know, some of it's sketchy. But like people out there still think about Thor. Especially um, now. I mean, I feel like, you know, with the comic book industry, like you'd get this whole rejuvenated Thor cult going on, right, you know, like right, fanfic. Right. Like I would love to see an episode where it's like fanfic is fueling worship of these gods. <laughs> right. right. It's funny because I'm going off memory here again. But like when when Odin talks about Thor in the book. He's like, yeah, he was big and dumb and stupid. Um, he wasn't going to make it as times change, which is an interesting idea. Like Odin is a bit of a trickster himself. Yeah. He's a con man. He acquires knowledge and sacrifices parts of himself and his well-being to acquire knowledge. Thor has never been that kind of character. He's been like, I, I go somewhere and hit something with my hammer really hard. And even like the, the kind of marvel comics version which has been iterated upon that's pretty much what thor does you know like he's a big dumb brute he's not smart the idea of him surviving changing times is an unlikely one and that was what was interesting about how gaiman uh, portrayed him in those passages in the book so we also in this episode we meet um, media for the first time yeah and yeah. she's a companion of Technical Boy, or not companion, but she's from the same pantheon as Technical yeah. Boy, who is so annoying. And I thought media was actually done incredibly well. I, I really appreciate that scene on multiple levels. Obvious love of Gillian Anderson aside, what I really liked about that scene was where it happened in this kind of like strip mall, gas station, grocery store whatever that shadow was in something like a good guys or something like that yeah yeah like ubiquitous kind of like faceless shopping experience that we all have right mm -hmm. and of course there's a bank of tvs there waiting to get picked up but i also love how that scene as it was written described tension within their ranks right 
like the these new gods, they don't all get along. She's like, Yeah, hey, I'm sorry about the way technical technical boy treated you, right? Mm-hmm. Like you all roughed up, I won't do that to you, et cetera, et cetera. You know, she's trying to seduce him essentially into like you know, aligning himself with her. And I thought that was great because, you know, let you know that, hey, the same thing that Wednesday is trying to do on his side of things, like forge alliances, muster an army for this coming conflict, they're probably trying to do too. And I thought that was great. Yeah. And also, I think it's a she really is the perfect god for assimilation, because since we've been talking about how a lot of the problems that these older gods have is that they don't quite assimilate into U.S. culture that well, or if they do, they do it in ways that kind of disempower them. But television is one of the ways that people learn to be American um, all over the world, in fact, because, of course, uh, television exports from the U.S. are quite popular And so it was interesting, and especially that she's I Love Lucy because, of course, or that she's Lucy from I Love Lucy because, of course, the show I Love Lucy was sort of about assimilation since she was, you know, in what in the 50s would have been a mixed marriage, um, (laughs) which now would just be kind of like, oh, it's a couple of white people, whatever. And I think that that theme of old gods and new gods really maps well, especially with media, onto this idea of kind of first generation immigrants versus their children and what kind of culture their children have and how they've learned to be this kind of generic United States type person as opposed to someone who has cultural particularity like Chernobog or Bilquis, who I still, I'm still wanting to know how she got over. Um, I, I think you're right that, you know, it, it kind of doesn't matter, but it's interesting that you know, we get this really vivid picture of how Anansi gets over, but like Bilquis, ah, eh, whatever, somebody had her in their pocket, you know, who cares? <laughs> and you know, like if if she's pretty much like the personification of lust, yeah, it doesn't matter. Like we know that lust has been an active abstract concept ever since the days of, you know, early man, right? If not before. Early humans. Yes. Um, but my feeling is that she is supposed to be kind of like a Mesopotamian fertility god. I love that scene in the museum where she looks at this really ancient representation of a fertility goddess and looks at these kind of jewels that she obviously once wore during um, rituals. And it made me feel like kind of what a baby boomer going to a record store must feel like. Yeah. You know, she's like walking in and it's like she's having nostalgia for these objects that are no longer used. But of course, these are objects that are thousands of years old. And right. um, it gave you this it gave me this very realistic feeling of like what it would be like to actually have lived that long. OK, so we talked about all of our gods in this episode. And now I wanted to ask you about something that I don't know that much about, but I'm pretty sure you're an expert on, which is how do you think that this representation of old gods and new gods fits into comic books where we also have this idea of old gods and new gods, especially in DC comics, there's like a whole thing, right? Like there's a whole view yeah. of, of how gods work. Does, does this seem like it's kind of playing on that? Or am I just completely misreading? <laughs> no, I do think there's some parallels. It's funny, every time I write about this show, when I write the, the phrase new gods, Jack Kirby's creations of DC, his fourth world kind of universe, which people probably know, Darkseid is the main bad guy, this kind of nigh untipotent like conqueror of, of galaxies and universes. He's a bad guy. 
and he's probably the best known character from that. And there's other characters like Orion and Light Ray and, and the Black Racer. So these those were are, like... And those are all new gods. Yeah, those are all new gods. What makes them new gods versus old gods? Like, are they people who... Are they gods who've been born more recently, kind of like in American gods, or is it something else? They're, they've been born more recently. So in the fourth world mythology, the reason they call it the fourth world is this is the fourth time that this, this particular cosmology has birthed celestial beings. Been, their predecessors, we really don't meet that much. There was a, a Walt Simonson miniseries based on Orion that delved into it a little bit. I don't remember it that much. So this is the fourth cycle, this modern cycle of gods that have been birthed out into the universe. And they coexist with characters like Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman in the DC universe. And what's interesting about them and the way that their godhood has been portrayed in the comics is that they mingle with mortals, right? Like they come to Earth, like Darkseid comes to Earth in search of something called the anti-life equation, which supposedly is locked in um, a particular human mind. So he wants to subjugate the planet, get the anti-life equation, use its power to subjugate the entire universe and bend it to its will, bend it to his will. But in the meantime, while all this is happening, the universe that they operate in is very far away and they get they they come to earth via the special technology called boom tubes um while all this is happening like they're hanging around on earth like uh, mr miracle is uh one of the characters and he's like he's running around in a circus as an escape artist and you know orion is hanging with the justice league so they mingle in human affairs which is something that that's one connection i see with american gods is like these beings that are more powerful than us longer lived than us um, mere mortals who, because humanity is important and the the well of their power, they have to stay amongst them, right? And this is a similar thing here. It's a very comic book idea where like, yeah, there's all these supernatural beings that live in the clouds and in other dimensions and stuff. They're and they're they're gods to us, but they still need humanity in a way that they have to interact with them. And that's not just you know the purview of comic books, right? That goes back to all kinds of ancient mythologies. But the, the thing that feels most comic booky about it to me is this secret identity kind of layer over the God characters we've met so far. Like nobody rolls up into Big Bilquis's place and knows what they're getting into, right? Um, in my recap, I said it's, they think they've lucked into the best Tinder date of their lives, right? This and they kind of have. <laughs> oh yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, maybe not the happy ending they were expecting, but right. still happy. <laughs> it's funny because when we do transition to that scene with Bilquis, we see the dude there with his boner and he's in that field of stars, which I think we're kind of led to believe is the interior of Bilquis, right? Like she's a, a, a God being. So when she absorbs them, they're just there in her star field and maybe she breaks them down into like some raw components or something. But like, <laughs> yeah, you're literally one with a goddess. That was a powerful scene. But yeah, yeah I, I think the secret identity thing is the most comic booky thing at play here. Because we still don't know within the narrative of the show, we don't know who Wednesday is. I mean, the first clue was Chernobyl calling him Wotan, right? Which is a Germanic name for Odin. But we still don't know who he is. If you read the book, like both of us have, you know who he is. But like... You, you don't know who Bilquis is. You don't know who Chernobog is. You, you know, they could be superhero characters for all, you know, retired superhero characters for the way that the narrative is presenting them at this point. We haven't seen them do like really major godlike feats. Right now we know that Chernobog is really good with a hammer and Wednesday basically can talk his way into anything. And we see te Technical Boy seems like more of a god 
or superhero because he operates in a different reality. It seems like he has the most superpowers that we've seen because, yeah. I mean, unless you consider being able to appear on a TV set like media does to be a superpower, which is kind of just what you can do with Skype and a little bit of hacking. So <laughs> um, it's not it's not that super. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting that they really I mean, they really do come across as kind of retired superheroes who are just right. barely you know able to kind of i mean in some cases they're barely able to even get out of bed i mean yeah yeah uh Chernobog was like he, he trudges up the stairs after a long day of work and he's like get out i don't want to deal with you right now um, he's like yeah this is not a guy to be scared of until he starts talking about what he used to do it's funny going back to the media scene real quick and you mentioning that's something you can do on Skype. The thing that made me laugh was when we see Yan uh, Shadow yank out that cable. It's an HDMI cable. <laughs> it's not a power cable. They want you to think it's a power cable, but it's not. And so it's like you didn't really turn anything off. But sure, I'll roll with it. <laughs> well, you know, it disconnected the TV from something. Right. From something. And it <laughs> yeah. should have stopped working, but it still is. The one other question I had actually about, this is just really my chance to ask about the new gods in DC because I've always wanted to know what the hell. Are they symbolic in the same way that these gods are? Because we see a lot of the new gods and American gods are basically almost allegorical figures. Like, I represent computers. I represent guns. You know, Right, right. Are they, is that the case in DC? A little bit. I mean, they, they play similar roles. Like, Orion is a god of war. You know, he's a god of combat and, and, and physical violence. So he does play that kind of a role. They don't get worshipped the same way that that gods on earth do but like it is a celestial kind of component to their function and and dark side's obviously a god of darkness and oppression and control high father his kind of benevolent counterpart on the world of new genesis is like you know a, a loving kind of like all father figure who preaches tolerance and understanding light ray is a god of light who's also from New Genesis, the good planet. There's a good planet of New Genesis and a bad planet of Apocalypse. Oh. And, 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 uh, and Light Ray is, uh, controls light and has like solar powers and stuff like that. So there, there is some uh, allegorical nature to them. They were clearly modeled on like old, yeah, old school Roman. Gods. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then, exactly. so did Marvel start create, did Marvel create the Thor stories to kind of compete. So it's interesting. So it's interesting. The, the real world publishing drama was that Jack Kirby went to DC after a, a big falling out with Marvel in the seventies and the Thor characters came first. So the, the, the revisitation of Norse mythology that we saw in Thor, that was him and, and Stan Lee and Roy Thomas doing that all came first. And it's funny because the Thor characters come first the new gods come next, and I might have my chronology wrong, but Kirby went back to that well yet another time with The Eternals, which was another Marvel Comics cadre of characters uh, that were based on mythology. So there was a character called Icarus, and the intertwining got even more tight because he was like, yeah, that was really me back in the day in the Greco-Roman mythologies, you know, zipping around the, the, the sun and whatnot. And uh, they were like, so they yeah. like retconned Greek mythology. Yes, and made them into like <laughs> genetically superior super beings that live for thousands of years. So yeah, he went back to that like three times in his career, that, that basic idea. So it's funny that you ask about Thor and because yeah, he, he, he worked off that template three times. And you know, to his credit, Jack Kirby was 
had this like almost scholarly interest in religions and faith practices and the metaphorical power of those things. He wrote this grand kind of operatic architecture into just about anything he worked on as a writer and uh, an artist. So, you know, I don't think you can be as cheap as to say he didn't have any ideas and he went back to this thing three or four times in his career. I think it was more like it was a lifelong interest of his that he tried to um, execute in different ways. Some of them are really similar, yeah, but I think, you know, he was fascinated with that stuff. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's, it's similar with Neil Gaiman. He's returned to the the theme of Gods Among Us. He just released a book, which is just basically about Norse mythology. Like, yeah, it's just straight yeah. up, like, all the cool shit I've learned by being Neil Gaiman and researching my books. I keep trying to think about how is this uniquely American? Because I do feel like Jack Kirby especially is a really American creator. And he helped generate, you know, through his comics, like an American mythology, which now we're all enjoying at the movies. Although, well, I kind of like the Marvel movies better. But still, theoretically, I could be enjoying the DC movies at any minute, any moment. They could change it up. Wonder Um, Woman comes out in a month. I know. Fingers crossed. And she actually is kind of from this whole God pantheon thing. Yeah, very much so. I just, yeah. I'm. But I do think that it's worth, you know, kind of as we come to a conclusion about this episode, thinking about how these types of stories are American because one of the themes in the novel, which hasn't really come up in the series, is that America is a bad land for gods. It's like not a good place to be a god, which actually the entire novel is sort of arguing against that because it's actually kind of a great place for gods. There's a ton of gods here. Maybe not the old gods. Maybe not the old gods, but the old gods are still hanging out and, you know, they, they still have a place. And some some of the old gods have been kind of rehabilitated in some way. And it's, it's a land that actually spawns a, a lot of gods and has brought many gods to it. And of course, later we find out kind of what's hinted at in the opening credits to the show where we see you know, a massive, basically a totem pole being built out of these gods. So there's obviously this, you know, the land of America itself is, you know, which has been inhabited for thousands of years long before all these other gods got here, you know, is, is sort of God haunted. I'm just trying to suss out like, what is an American view of gods? Like what's Kirby getting at? What's Gaiman getting at? I don't know if, if we can answer that question, but I feel like you know it's funny. It's it's this is going to sound like a, a a politically oriented answer, and I guess it is given the current times. But I feel like if there's an ur deity in American kind of zeitgeist, I think it's the the very idea of American exceptionalism, the very idea that we're different and better than other countries, and that the the, the formation of this country and success of this country represent this inflection point in world history. I think that's something that Americans worship. And I think that's something that comes out in the book, which this idea that like America's hot shit is the hottest shit in the world and in history. And the that conceit arguably pulls in people from other cultures and they bring their cultures in with them, but they still have to be kind of enthrall to the idea of American exceptionalism. Sure, you're bringing your stuff, right? All, all your cool languages and foods and practices that weren't developed here but now that belongs to us now that becomes you will be uh, assimilated (laughs) right yeah it it becomes part of this larger body and the individual textures get scraped off and you're left with something that gets understood as american i live in texas now 
And one of the things that's been interesting to learn is that like a lot of the barbecue traditions that we think is quintessentially American come from Eastern Europe. They come from places like Germany. They also come from Native Americans because the Mississippian culture, which was huge in the South a thousand years ago, I mean, that was that was the culture. They were really into barbecues. And if you go to any of these Mississippian sites, which I've done because I'm an archaeology nerd, one of the big things that they find during excavations are the remains of barbecues. And they'll be like, oh, yep, they had a party. There's just a giant frickin' pit full of bones. Right. And people have been gnawing on them, so we know what's up. <laughs> yeah. And so, but you don't think of that stuff as Mississippian. You don't think of it as Eastern European. You think of it as American. And that's why I think the god of American exceptionalism that we don't have necessarily a name for, maybe we can call it FBI America, um, <laughs> yeah. is like what passes for like this kind of secular theological construct in this country. I think that's really true. It's sort of the god of make America great again. And yeah. and I think what's great about this show about American gods is that it breaks down that myth and shows all the little pieces that went into yeah. making it up. And so it yep. kind of it celebrates America's greatness, but at the same time takes it apart and reminds you that, you know, that greatness is actually built on like a lot of terrible stuff. And yeah. a lot of stuff that has been forgotten and isn't acknowledged. And, you know, we need to do that. We need to remember those things in order to really understand America. And the things that come up in its place, like Technical Boy, like media, the characters that we've seen so far, they are all about presenting a faceless substitute, right? Like if you think about the children who are Technical Boy's minions, like they do what he wants and they do it presumably on the same way they don't have faces or distinguishing characteristics. They're like, you know, they're goons, they're faceless goons. And if you think about media, you're basically getting one face across different screens. You think about the scene where she appears and she's on one screen next to like a workout video and some other shows around her. But when, when it's time for her to, to present her power, she takes over both banks of TV screens, right? Like, this is all you're going to see right now. And then when she's talking to Shadow, it zooms into her, like, the eyes, the mouth. And, like, basically, any distinctiveness gets wiped away. You're just talking to a concept. And there's no room for individuality within that concept in either one of those new god characters that we've met so far. Yeah, that's really true. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. Thanks, Annalie. You've been listening to Decrypted, Ars Technica's podcast about the TV that we can't stop info dumping about. I'm the tech culture editor here at Ars Technica, Annalie Newitz, and we're going to be watching every episode of American Gods, so we'll be back for the next six weeks dissecting everything we can about this amazing TV show, so tune in next week. <laughs>